You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjacks.com. Okay, picture the scene. 3,000 years ago in Jerusalem, and David, King David, who has just become king of Israel, has defeated the Philistines, and he decides that now is the time to bring back the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So he gathers 30,000 of his best men, of Israel's best men, and they head towards the town of Bale Judah, around nine miles away from where the, the ark has been for the last 20 years. The Philistines had stolen this ark 20 years previously, and they had held on to it for seven months before they had to give it back. And they had to give it back because it was doing weird things. When they put it in their temple, the idols would fall and bow and break before this Ark of the Covenant. And then these plagues started bursting out. They were getting mice and boils and hemorrhoids. And um, so they decided, why don't you have this back? (laughs) You can have this. And so they took it to um, this town, and it had stayed there for 20 years. And every single one of... David's men knew what this ark was. They knew what it was. It was the ark of God. It was the ark of the covenant. Inside were the tablets of stone that Moses had brought down with the commandments on. It it held a a pot of manna and it held um, Aaron's rod. And it was the most sacred, holy thing. But it wasn't just a thing because on top of the thing was what was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat was God himself in his glory. So every single one of David's men knew what this thing was. That it wasn't just a thing, it was God himself on top as well. And as they get to the town, they get to the town, they decide to load it on a cart, and they load it onto this cart to carry it the nine miles back to Jerusalem. And as they're doing doing this, they're singing and they're worshipping and they're playing their lutes and their um, lyres and their tambourines and their uh, synthesizers. And um, they're worshipping on the way back. And it's on this cart pulled by these oxen. And then one of the oxen stumbles. And as one of the oxen stumbles, this guy called Uzzah, who was driving the cart, reaches out and he touches the Ark of the Covenant. And bang, right there he dies. He touches the holiness of God, and dies instantly. And David is upset. And the Bible says he is angry and afraid. And so he decides, let's not carry this any further. So they take it to the nearest house, to a guy called Obed-Edom's house. And there it stays for three months. And this is where we pick up the story. In 2 Samuel, chapter 6, verse 12. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts 
and the sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And David is famous for being a man after God's own heart. He was a great king and a great warrior known throughout the history of Israel. But firstly, and most importantly, he was known as a man after God's own heart. He was known as a worshipper. And he loved to worship this holy God. He lived to worship this holy God. Now, this is going to come as a bit of a shock to you, but I'm not the best dancer. And um, I know. And I've seen some of you guys dance, and some of you are very elegant in the way you dance. You know, you're like Timberlakes, gliding around <laughs> the dance floor. Visions of elegance. And, um, and in my mind, that's how I am. But in the reality, it's a little bo- bit more like, like this. No, show us your Yeah, that's kind of close to the mark. And um, so those awkward faces watching him are familiar to me, and the slow clapping and the gradual bemusement of what the heck is this that you see in everyone's eyes. That's kind of what I experience when I dance. And so I can understand being embarrassed and being ashamed and being held in disdain or how I dance, and David's joy in this scene, in this chapter, David's joy is overwhelming, and he cannot help it. He breaks out into dance. He is so overwhelmed by God's glory and God's victory that this ark has come back to Jerusalem, that the glory of God has returned to where it should be. This causes this overflow of worship in him, and he is met with awkward faces, concerned looks, and the disdain of his wife. You are meant to be a king. You are meant to be strong and civilized and sophisticated and regal and important. And this is meant to be holy. In verse 13, it says that they took six steps and then sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. And many teachers, many scholars, many people read that to mean that they did that every six steps 
for miles. Every six steps they took, they sacrificed and worshipped. Then they took another six steps and they sacrificed and they worshipped. Such was the reverence for God and this ark and what they had seen this ark do and what they had seen in the glory and power of God and what the stories they had heard of this ark. They tread they, they trod so lightly, so carefully. They took their time to honor God. This was a holy scene with all the sounds and sights and smells of worship and holiness and reverence. And here is David dancing like a lunatic in the middle of this holy reverence scene. This was meant to be holy and here he is being crazy. But he is overwhelmed with joy and worship. It's not irreverent. The glory of God is not meant to paralyze you. The glory of God is meant to compel you, excite you, draw the worship from you. And for those whose hearts are his, for those who have hearts after God's own, The glory of God causes passion and delight and overwhelming joy that you cannot hold back. Everybody else is afraid, but David is overjoyed. What does he know that no one else knows? What does he know that no one else knows? What does he get that no one else gets? He has the heart of God. And when you have the heart of God, you cannot help but delight in his glory and his victory. A guy called Mike Bickle says this, It takes God to love God, and it takes God to know God. If you want to have the heart of God, you need to ask him for it. If you want to know the love of God, if you want to love him, You need to ask him for it. If you want to know him, you need to ask him to show you. Every Christian, every one of us who follows Jesus has the Holy Spirit for this very purpose. And he is waiting for us us to ask him. He's waiting for us to ask him to show us. To lead us, to love him, to worship him, to be full of joy. If it, ta- it takes God to love God and it takes God to know God. And A.W. Tozer takes this further. He says this, The impulse to pursue God originates with God, His Spirit in us. But the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after Him. Psalm 63 verse 8 says, My soul follows hard after you. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. But just read through the Psalms. If you read through the Psalms, you will see as he writes these Psalms time and time again, you'll see what a a heart that's after God actually looks like. A heart that's after God is one that is always speaking to itself. One that is always speaking to its soul. David says in the Psalms, Awake, my soul. And why does he say that? Because his soul was asleep. Awake, my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He tells himself, 
He encourages himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. He's constantly encouraging himself to worship, to surrender, to honor God, and find satisfaction only in him. The impulse to worship God comes from him, but the outworking, the outworking, how that actually happens, is us following hard, chasing hard after him. And that is the hard part. Because as we chase after him with all we have, as we pursue him with all we have, the world and the church sometimes even, others, other people, look on us with contempt. In verse 20, 2 Samuel chapter 6, further on in verse 20 it says this, When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David says to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in your eyes. This was meant to be holy and you were meant to be king. But he was unafraid. He didn't care. And throughout scripture, we see it happen a few times where God is worshipped extravagantly. Where somebody just goes crazy in worship for God and there is a sudden and negative reaction. We see it here in this story. We see it when the three wise men come to bring gifts and worship to the newborn Jesus. And as they come to Bethlehem, Herod finds out about this worship and he is raging. He is jealous and threatened. And all this worship which is directed to this baby, to Jesus, threatens him and angers him. And so he orders baby boys throughout Bethlehem to be murdered. A sudden and negative and violent reaction. We see it again in Jesus' life later on where he's at a Pharisee's house and Mary pours out expensive perfume and tears and kisses at the feet of Jesus because she is so overwhelmed by who he is and so grateful at his love and his grace. Just this extravagant scene of worship and the Pharisees in the room try and dismiss her and condemn her and send her away. And Jesus protects her and says, no, she's the only one in this room who really knows what's going on. And in Mark's gospel, it makes it clear that this act of worship is the thing, it's like the final straw that breaks Judas. And he sees this worship and he immediately goes to the chief priests to report Jesus and ultimately to send him to 
to the cross, to his death. It was before the Lord who chose me, and I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will be even more ashamed in your eyes. David didn't care. Mary didn't care. I love it when my children dance and sing. I, I, have, um, I have four four boys, four children, and they range. The youngest is two, the eldest is eight at the moment, almost nine. And uh, I love it when they, they dance and they sing. And they do that every now and then. And it brings me, as their father, it brings me joy. I like it. I love it. It's fun, right? It's cool. But it's not necessarily the song itself that I love, because that's kind of out of tune and the lyrics are all messed up. It's not the song itself. It's not like this is an incredible song. Or when they dance, it's not the uncoordinated movement, which I don't know where they get that from, but they, it's all that uncoordinated movement, you know, just freestyle, just dropping the robot in there. And it's like, you know, it's all this uncoordinated movement. It's not the dance itself. It's not like the, the, the beauty of the dance that, that fills me with joy. It's them. It's them. That's what fills me with joy. It's the freedom that they have to be themselves. It's the freedom they have to express themselves. And it's the freedom that I love. Them. I love them being them. That's what I love. Not the dance, not the song, but them. But sometimes when they dance and they sing like that, they... They, you, know, you know, like kids do, they get a moment where they suddenly become self-conscious, right? They suddenly become aware of it. And maybe they'll cover their face or they'll run out the room and they'll just be embarrassed. And, and that breaks my heart, right? And it's not because the dance has stopped or the song has stopped. That's not why my heart is broken. But because they feel ashamed. Because they feel shut down. They feel so horribly self-conscious. And we're the same as children. And we feel embarrassed and we feel ashamed and we feel shut down. And when we feel like that, it kills our worship. Shuts it down. Reigns it in. It's not about the singing in this place. It's not about the dancing in this place. It is about the freedom to worship. The freedom we have in Jesus is to be who we were made to be and to be who we're made to be and who we're made to be and who we're made to be. That's what the freedom is here. To do what we were made to do. To worship to totally and utterly abandoned, overwhelmed with the glory of God and his love for us, that we are set free to worship. And so when you step out to worship God, when you step out to honor him, when you step out to obey him in life, people are going to think you're stupid. People are going to think you're wrong. People are going to think you're crazy and they may dismiss you. And whenever we do that to others, whenever we're in a time of worship or we see someone else's passion for God, whenever we see somebody else's worship 
We see their song. We see their dance. We see their exuberance. We see their heart. We see their very passion for God. And we shut it down. We dismiss them. We think, oh, that's just over the top. That's just hype. That's just excitement. That's just emotion. That's just, that's just craziness. Whenever we do that, we align ourselves with David's wife. We align ourselves with Herod. We align ourselves with the Pharisees and Judas. We shut down worshipping others. Because you see, a heart after God's, a heart after God's own heart, is not just one that is free to worship itself. It is one that is free to allow others to worship as themselves. That's what that freedom is. It's not just to be able yourself to worship and be free. It is the freedom to allow others to do that. How precious is that? How good is that? How would that transform our church and our worship if we had the freedom to allow others to be themselves and to worship? That freedom, that heart, that heart after God, that heart of David to pursue God, to love him, to be free to worship him is one that doesn't pour water on somebody else's fire. It pours gasoline on someone else's fire. It says, you go for it. You go. I love it. I love you. You go for it. You're crazy. (laughs) And I think you might hit me if you get too close. But (laughs) go for it. Go for it. Be free. Someone said it once, if you love someone, set them free. That's not in the Bible, but it's... <laughs> it is in the Bible, but it doesn't say it like that. It's, it's not quite as explicit, but it's... But it's true very true. If you love someone, set them free. And what's what we're going to do this morning? We're going to pray for more freedom in our church. We're going to pray for more freedom in our worship and we're going to worship again together. Why don't we stand?